Psalm 32. Here we have a psalm of David. A maskal is the uh, heading there, a psalm of, most people would agree, instruction. The word's a little unclear, but there's 13 psalms entitled that way. Uh, I'm not going to tell you them all. That's your homework. You can go find them. And they're instructive, typically. They're teaching us about something. This particular psalm is a well-known psalm. I'm sure there's many of you here that are familiar with this. And what David is instructing in and contemplating here is the blessings of forgiveness towards sinners. God's mercy towards sinners. Uh, In Psalm 51, which also relates to David and one of his personal sins, He says in verses 12 and 13, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So Psalm 32 here is really an outflow of that heart and desire to teach sinners or transgressors the way and have people converted back to him. Uh, It is reminiscent of Jesus's words to Peter when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, when you're restored or converted, strengthen your brethren. You're going to fail, Peter, but you're going to find in that failing my grace in a particular way. And then I want you to use that, instruct others, point them toward me. And David is doing that here in this psalm. Uh, It was said that Augustine, as he lay dying, had a placard made with this psalm on it and put at the end of his bed so he could look at it, read it, keep it in his mind. So it's been a blessing for literally thousands of years, and I think it's still going to be a blessing for us tonight. So let's look at this psalm, verse 1. Right off the bat, he's going to state his intention. Blessed is, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David begins with two blesseds. Uh, the word itself actually is plural there. It's blessednesses, if I could say it like that. Plenty of blessing is what he's describing here toward those who find God's forgiveness. There's a threefold kind of working out of this, if you'll notice. He uses three words for sin, and then three words for God's covering of that sin. Transgression, typically that's a very forward act of obedience. There's a known line, and I decide to cross it anyway. That's a transgression. Sin is the second word used to describe sin there, and that is typically in terms of... uh, what type of sin it would look like, a falling short. We just fall short in one way or another. We can't hit that mark of perfection or holiness or what we're supposed to be. And the last word there is iniquity, which is typically a twisting of the nature. There's something essentially wrong with us as human beings. We're broken on the inside. That sin nature twisted one way or another. And the response is, The transgression is forgiven, put away. The sin is covered, and he does not impute the iniquity. Speaking about how God works in all of these ways, really kind of, particularly with those three words of sin, uh, a description of sin in its fullness, and then God superseding that, and in a way that only he can, 
answering all of those problems. Right? We don't want our transgressions held against us forever, unforgiven. We don't want our sins, our falling short, constantly being brought out over and over again. No human being can survive if they're always compared to perfection because we're imperfect individuals. Uh, the, the blessings of God in covering this sin are being brought out here by David. Interestingly enough, those three words again for sin, they're used in Leviticus 16 when it came to the rituals of the Day of Atonement in Israel's history. Leviticus 16:21 says this, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions concerning all their sins, the same three words, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. They're also used again, interestingly enough, in God's own revelation of his character to Moses in the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 say this, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God wants to talk about who he is in a unique way, he talks about what he does with our sin and his fullness. Because he is who he is, these blessings exist for sinful men and women. It's who he is. And the incredible blessing of knowing that our transgressions are forgiven, our sins are covered, and our iniquities are not imputed is something that David knows, knows personally, and he now wants to get that across to anybody who finds themselves in that position of feeling those things one way or another. And I do think it's almost, it sounds very simple, but I think it's important to note David knows that he's forgiven, that he's covered, that his sins are not imputed to him. If it couldn't be known, then the joy of those things could never be experienced. If it was, if it was always possible that it wasn't true that our sins are forgiven or covered or not imputed to us, we, we would never have these joys or these blessings. And sometimes... People live in a constant worry, like, that's something we can't really know. Or maybe it even seems a little bit uh, prideful for some people or arrogant to stay. We can know we're forgiven. The world doesn't even like that. Maybe if you just said, I, you, I think I'm probably forgiven. I'm working towards forgiveness. Or No, we can stay a truth. Charles Spurgeon in his Treasury of David says, It's clear from the text that a man can know that he is pardoned. Where would be the blessedness of an unknown forgiveness? Clearly, it is a matter of knowledge, for it is the ground of comfort. You, God wants us to know that our sins are forgiven, that we are blessed in that way from him. He wants us to know it like a fact so that it can be stated. If somebody came to me and said, are you married? I would say, yes, I am. 
So if they come to me and say, are you forgiven? I can say, yes, I am. Not conceited, not prideful. That this is something the Lord wants us to have and hold on to. And this is where really the blessings of any spiritual life begin. We know that. In our moment of salvation, it's where it begins. There's a personal recognition that Jesus has purchased through a great price forgiveness for me. We have to remember that. He didn't just forgive the world. He forgave me. He did die for the sins of the world, but he also died for my sins. Yeah, I love what Paul says, that he loved me and gave himself for me. That's how he describes it in Galatians. There's, there's a knowledge of that, a personal knowledge of it. And we grow in grace and the knowledge of him. We learn more and feel more of our sin. And we also should learn more and feel more the value of the forgiveness that Christ offers to us. These blessings should grow. We start there and we move there. It's elaborated in the book of Romans. Paul would take these verses in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8, and say this, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. This work is God's work. It's because of who he is. It's a righteousness apart from our own. And it is extended to us through Jesus Christ. And God and God alone is the one who can give it. Because God and God alone is the one who paid for it. Romans again tells us that he is both just and the justifier. Which means God doesn't just, I think sometimes people think God randomly kind of just sprouts out forgiveness for people and you can fall into it like a puddle or something like that. That's not how it works. We believe that God can righteously give forgiveness because he has righteously paid the price. And only because he has paid the price, he alone can offer forgiveness. And these blessings are found when the Lord does not impute iniquity to somebody. They're his. They're particular to him. And David recognizes this in his own life. And he's trying to get this across again to other individuals. It's not just we do it on our own. And it's not just we start this way and then have to work on our own. We start this way. We continue this way all through our lives. There's a verse that says, Say this word of love again. Christ receives sinful men. Chief of sinners though I be, Christ is all in all to me. And I think it's important just to say here, uh, David is not somebody who is coming to know God that is teaching us this. Certainly this relates to salvation and the moment of our salvation. But as I said before, it, it starts there and then it continues. But when David is giving this psalm, David was somebody who walked with God when he sinned. He was, he was not just somebody 
who was just coming out of his sin. He was somebody who knew God and somebody who, in fact, knew better than to sin the sin that he did, particularly with Bathsheba and Uriah. First Kings 15.5 says this, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. The Bible makes a note that David did everything God commanded him to do. It's pretty incredible. But then it says, except in this one occasion, which tells us not that David was perfect or he never sinned, what, what it tells us is there was something unique here that David did. It was a transgression. David knew better. He walked with God, and he did it anyway. And that is the man now who is telling us that there's incredible blessings in forgiveness. And I think that's important because sometimes we have believers who have walked with the Lord for a while who find themselves in sin And they can think, wow, if I'm an unsaved person and I get saved, God's forgiveness works a particular way. But, look, I was saved. I already walked with God. I should have known better. Well, that's the man who's trying to instruct us right here. That's the man who's teaching us about God's forgiveness. The implication is, That man found a place of rest and blessing in God's forgiveness after those sins. Now, he goes on, verse 2, or really the second half of 2 there, he says, And in whose spirit there is no deceit, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. David acknowledges here God's awesome forgiveness. He wants everybody to know that, but he throws something else in here, and that is that he knows forgiveness doesn't mean that we can then do whatever we want in our sin, or God doesn't care about our actions anymore, that forgiveness is just there for us to embrace our sin, that I can now enjoy everything that Jesus died for, and he died so that I could do that. That's not what he's saying here. We have to come to God for forgiveness, notice, with no guile or deceit in our spirit. Unfortunately, David knew the pain of trying to live a life of deceit and guile. He describes that here. He describes miserable days of unrepentant sin. When David sinned, he did not immediately repent. He tried to hide those things. He tried to cover it. He's speaking afterwards as a person who has found a place of forgiveness and blessing. But in the moment, he says... There's a key. It's in whose spirit there is no guile. He said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. The literal, uh, literal like foundation of his life and physical life. 
through my groaning all the day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned to the drought of summer. David didn't immediately experience the blessings of forgiveness because he tried to cover this up, tried to hide his sin. And I think, particularly in our day and age, what an issue this is. Has it ever been easier to hide our sin, to have a double life somewhere, to try to cover things that we know are wrong? And what we see here is the sad state of a man in sin without a savior. What, what does he do? Troubled by his conscience, under guilt, physically affected by it all. It's wonderful when the everlasting arms are underneath us. It's a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. And David says, have that hand pressing against him. Your hand was heavy upon me. Heavy upon him to push him a certain direction. We'll see. But he's describing his experience. This is where I was before. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." It actually seems like a strange place here at the end of verse 4 to say, "Selah," that means pause, think about this. But what David wants us to do is to pause and contemplate. Look at the child of God trying to hide sin from God. It is a sad sight. A sad and instructive sight. That's what he's giving us here. Pause. Think about this. Think about the child of God trying to hide sin from God. This is, this is the life I lived. Let me instruct you here. What it was like for me. Where I was in that place. Now, what changed this situation for David? We see verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. What brought him out of this darkness? True repentance. Acknowledgement. Confession, he says. And I think this is important because I, I really believe people so often lack the blessings of God's forgiveness because they're still in David's place there. They're trying to cover their sin. They're, say they're, they say they want forgiveness, but really they're looking for an excuse for their sin. And there's a big difference between coming to God and asking him to forgive us and looking for God to excuse us. Forgiveness is an acceptance of sin. An excuse is a deflection of it, one way or another, on some level. And there are many ways people do this. We all do it. We're all tempted to it. We all fear consequence in one way or another. David could have been put to death for his sin, but when the moment came... He surrendered himself even to the consequence. He said, I'm the man. When Nathan put his finger in his face, said, you're the man. He said, I am. You're right. He could have covered himself. He could have fought against the people who were against him. He could have had them thrown in jail. He could have persecuted them like King Asa did. 
There could, have been other, there could have been other options here for David. And because we fear consequence, we look for an excuse for our sins. Sometimes people are just hopeless. They just feel like, well, it's never going to change. I'm just going to stay in this place. What's the difference? Why should I try? Sometimes it's just straight rebellion. Our pride just says, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Sometimes it's wounded self-love. We think we're repentant, but really we have bad feelings because we can't stand to see ourselves as less as we want to see ourselves. Impatience with ourselves is really disgruntled pride witnessing its own downfall. We don't like that. Self-love does not like to look at itself imperfectly or to have that put out there. That's not humility. Self-deception we call evil good or good evil. What we did wasn't wrong. Lies and deceit. I think of Gehazi or Gehazi, however you want to say it, with Elisha going and trying to steal money. He should have known. Elisha knew everything all the time. And he comes back to him. Yeah, what were you doing out there? Oh, not, nothing. I'm not, not nothing. I heard somebody say when somebody, when your kids come to you and they say, I mean, you know, nothing in general. He said, you want to find out what they were doing then in specific. Right? Trying to lie, cover it up. Certainly false gospels, false Christs, other ways of salvation around our sin. Circumstances cause us to do it one way or another. I have to live with my girlfriend. We don't have enough money. There's no other option. As if you would be living nowhere without them. Right? There's always a blame shifting like Adam and Eve from the very beginning. There's a justifying of our sin, comparing our sin to somebody else's. We look around another human being and, well, you did this or, well, you did that. And in all these ways on various levels, all these things just show we're actually just looking for an excuse for our sin. We want to be excused from it. We look for forgiveness from God when our sin is inexcusable. I have nowhere to go. There is no excuse for this. I'm accountable for it. If our sin is excusable, then we'll satisfy ourselves with our own excuses, whatever they are. And most of the time, they're really weak, and other people won't even accept them. That's why they're bugged at us. But the problem is, we... We can't seek an excuse for our sin from God. He paid for it. There's no excuse before him. And you don't have to be a huge sinner to feel like you're without excuse, to know you're a sinner. You just need to look at Jesus Christ on the cross, bearing sin. What does what my sin cost? Look at Jesus on the cross. There's where I see justice, and there's where I see mercy. Someone said, if the cross tells us anything, is this sin is really difficult to fix, even for God. That's, that's where I see my sin clearly. And all the excuses kind of fall apart there. And when I stand before the cross, and I know I am without excuse, then I find God providing his own righteousness on my behalf. God, in his mercy, brought David, he says, 
to a moment of public confession before the prophet David. And he admitted that sin to his credit. He says, what, what change? I was covering my sin and I had none of these blessings. I was melting down on the inside. The very structure of who I was was rotting. It was like a famine, like a drought. And then I acknowledged my sin. I admitted my transgression. I confessed it to the Lord. And then he says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David learned. He didn't become perfect. He sinned other times in life. When he was an older man, he made another pretty grievous sin before the Lord. But that time, in numbering the people, we're told very quickly he learned his lesson. Second Samuel 24, David said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. He wasn't blaming anybody. He wasn't trying to hide anything. I sinned. I did wickedly. Immediately he turned to God's mercy. And I think this, this really matters. And it matters because God is ready to forgive. But he can't forgive unrepentant or cherished sin. He can't forgive sin where we're trying to just have it excused, have it be something other than what he actually paid for. God will forgive sin as he sees it, not as we see it. The reality is all of our sin is worse than we see it. We, we can't imagine, actually, how grievous our sin is. And the prideful, willful spirit is going to continue to cover its own sin and protect its sin. And it's not looking for forgiveness. It's looking for survival. I have to repent, change my heart, change my mind, take God's side against myself, my own wicked heart and life if I have to, confess and acknowledge that my sin is what God says it is. And it doesn't matter. It's not about like, how bad I feel about it. I get confused about those things sometimes. God doesn't have more mercy or forgiveness because uh, I live in bitter regret. Painful feelings of sin, they're going to fade. We, we all know this. We sin one place or another and we feel horrible. That keeps going you feel less horrible, and then you feel less, more horrible, that you feel less horrible, and you try to make yourself maybe feel horrible because it'll be better, right? We try, to, we try to somehow have some meritorious bad feeling that will make us feel like something's happening. There's no atonement in our regret. Repentance changes our attitude. It doesn't change his attitude. It puts me in the right position before him. He's ready to forgive me the whole time. But he's not going to forgive me of something fake, of non-reality. I will experience the blessings that he has for me. He is there, ready to forgive, right in the moment. And when I come with a spirit in which there is there no, no deceit, no guile, when I'm ready to say, I acknowledge my transgression before you. I call it what you call it. I see it as you see it. Then Isaiah 43, 25 says, 
I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And David says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave it. He knew it. He experienced it. And then he says again, Selah. Here's another pause for us. And the pause is needed because the previously miserable man who had guile and deceit and hiding his sin is now in a position where he's standing in the blessings of known forgiveness. He wants us to see that. Look at it. Know it. Do you see that? You know, you might think, how do I confess? What does that look? Do I have to confess before God or men, right? There's all these things people do. Of course, we confess before God. That's what David says here. I confess my transgressions to the Lord. But the reality is, once I've confessed before God, what I acknowledge before God will also be acknowledged before men. I won't, I won't have to fear that then. I don't hide it or defend it anymore. Again, David publicly had to say in a court, his own court where he gave judgment, when a prophet came and put his finger in his face and said, you're the man, he acknowledged before everyone, you're right, I am. And I have no recourse. And if I have to die for that, then I die for that. And God was gracious in his life. There was a measure of consequence, but it wasn't what it could have been. Peter sat there with Jesus and the other disciples. Jesus had to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter reproved in front of everybody by the Apostle Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul, who did so many things wrong, could say, I live always with a, trying to keep a clean conscience before God and men. A man who had done incredible wrong things in his past should have known better. Right? We think of the woman at the well. She received forgiveness in a conversation with Jesus Christ, and she runs back. We know her history wasn't a great history, and she starts telling everybody, come and see a guy who told me everything I ever did. She's not ashamed to confess before men anymore because she has forgiveness before God. Guile before God is useless. Guile before believers is unnecessary. If God forgives me, than whatever anybody else thinks is between them and him. But I can have guile before him, and a person who truly confesses will be able to find the blessings in that forgiveness, and they won't need to hide it either before men. This doesn't mean we go around and tell everybody our deep, dark secrets, right? But you understand, it means that, you know, you're, you're a husband who has an anger problem, or a dad who has been way too given to the world instead of the things of Christ and has not led your family, it means you can stand in front of your family and say, I have an anger problem, I'm sorry. Or in front of your wife and say, I've been leading in a wrong way. If you're a wife who's had a slanderous tongue and a quick temper and been bitter, what it means is, I don't just confess to God and I say nothing, you can look in front of other people and say, God has forgiven me for that. So I can ask your forgiveness as well as my husband, or to my kids. We made mistakes in our past. Somebody comes up and says, you did this in your past? You don't have to fight it. You say, you're right. And I'm forgiven. And I've repented. And I'm moving forward in the Lord. And he's grown me. He's given me grace. 
Now, everybody knew what David did, but he didn't, he didn't live in that moment. He received forgiveness. He confessed it before the Lord. And now he can bring it out in a way that he can help instruct other sinners like him to find their way back to the blessings of forgiveness in Christ. He said, I had to acknowledge it. I do acknowledge it. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, think about it. Pause there. Think about where I was. Think about where I am now. And he doesn't end there. He says, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of gray waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. For this cause, this is the blessedness of God's mercies. Because of this, because of who you are, how you respond to a confession of transgression, how you respond to a sincere spirit before you. Notice, the godly shall pray to you, not just the godless. Again, David was not a person who was a pagan heathen. He was a true follower of God who the vast majority of his life did the things the Lord wanted him to do. But guess what? He was imperfect. And he needed to find the blessings of forgiveness in his walk with the Lord, despite even his maturity in his walk with God. And he says the godly, not just the godless, are going to be those who quickly turn to God for cleansing and forgiveness. They know God won't hide from them or the confessed sinner in need. They want to be washed in him. They want to be continually cleansed in him. And they'll turn while there is time. Notice he says in 6, in a time when you may be found, there, there is still time to turn if the Lord is speaking to your heart. You want to turn before the doors shut, before the floods come. I think there's a picture of Noah's flood there. While we still, because the reality is there, there are times where we still have strength, we still have health, we still have days to live, or even still have a desire to respond, right? There's, there's times where God works in our lives. It was a very specific time when Nathan came to David and said, you're the man. That was the time for him to respond right there in confession and in repentance. And who knows what it would look like if he hadn't responded that way then? Who knows what his own heart would be like? We take, we take a big leap when we think the conviction God has on my heart now, I can push that off and some other time I'll feel convicted again. Then I'll respond at that time. What he's saying is, no, 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 no. The godly person is not going to treat this moment like this. They are going to turn to him while he may be found. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 say this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God promises mercy and forgiveness. He promises his covering and his cleansing. And he promises them today to anybody who wants them. He does not promise them through unlimited tomorrows. Right? There was a day when the door to the ark shut. 
and that was it. There was a time for David's response, and this is why we find David freely encouraging everyone to come to God. He said once, again, his hand was heavy upon me. Now, notice he says, God gives him this threefold deliverance in verse 7. You're my hiding place, you preserve me, and you surround me with songs of deliverance. That, that hand that was heavy upon him was not heavy upon him just to get him. God was moving him to somewhere good here. God had good things for David. He says again, Selah, pause. I want, you to, I want you to think about this. I want to teach sinners the way to this personal knowledge of God's blessings and forgiveness. This is, David will say, my testimony. You are my hiding place. You give me preservation from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Again, Spurgeon would say, personal claims upon our God are the joy of spiritual life. To lay our hand upon the Lord with the clasp of a personal my is delight at its full. It's, it's a, this is a personal reality for David. Notice three times he says, you, 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 me, me, me. This is who you are, and I have found this to be true. David is a witness here. He's a witness of who God is, the type of forgiveness he extends, not just to those who come in salvation, but to anyone who walks with him at any point in their life. You don't have to live without the blessings of God's forgiveness and covering, his cleansing of your account before him. You don't have to live questioning those things. You don't have to live in the position that he was in when he was covering and in guile and had to try to cover it from God and from other people. It was useless anyway. You can find yourself in a place where as a godly person, you cry to him, you draw near to him, and he will preserve you. You will find him preserving you. You will find him taking care of you. This is who he is. It's not because you deserve it. It's because he's worthy of giving it. None of us deserve it. He is like this. And David says, this is what he did for me. This is what's true. And he extends the same to anybody who finds themselves in that position. Now, uniquely, in verses 8 and 9 here, the voice of the Lord speaks into David's contemplation and says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. God speaks here, particularly to the lost and weary sinner, seeking life, but maybe not finding it because they haven't acknowledged and confessed their sin. God wants to say something to that individual. And what he says is, if you feel like you don't know how to get there, if you feel like 
I don't know what that would look like in my life. I'm scared. I don't know what the consequences will be. If I open that door, where does it take me? Well, here's what the Lord promises. He promises to be your personal instructor and teacher. He promises to guide you on that path. He promises that it'll have a good ending. He promises that we don't have to live in our sin. And we don't have to stay there. David didn't stay there. He was guided past that point in his life. God still used him. God had purposes for him. God instructed him. God taught him. Where do we go? Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He will show you what that looks like. He will personally guide you. The the contrast there is guide you with my eye. It's a very personal and intimate type of guidance. Literally, you just talk to somebody by your vision, where you're looking. As opposed to, it's contrasted with the beast who needs a bit and bridle that will not come near to you. If it gets away, it's just going to go. That's kind of the picture there. God is going to give us instruction, teaching, and guidance, and he will make you capable of receiving it. He knows how to speak to you. You're like, you don't know my situation. I don't have to know your situation. I'm not your instructor. I'm not your teacher. And I'm not your guide. He's your instructor. He's your teacher. And he's your guide. He will show you what it looks like for you in your life. And he will lead you to those blessings that he promises. He did it for David. And he promises to do it for you. He wants us to understand that's what he's doing with our lives. He says, don't be like the beasts which have no understanding. God doesn't want a relationship with us where we have to be drug around by forces that are greater than us senselessly. That's, that's what you have to do with the horse or the mule. Put a metal piece of something in their mouth to direct them. And it's this thing, these outside forces that have to move them somewhere. God didn't create us to be animals where he has to literally force you directions in your life because of things. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to be your teacher. He doesn't just want to ride you like an animal. He wants to be your father. He says, let me instruct you. I'll teach you. He speaks in his own promise here, which I think he knew people were going to need because it's scary to come to a true place of acknowledgement of our sin. Where does that take me? Well, if it takes you with him, you're okay. You're good. He'll help you. He'll instruct you. He'll teach you day by day. Don't be like an animal that he has to force somewhere. Respond to him. Then he says this in 10 and 11. David kind of finishes up here saying, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, 
mercy shall surround him. That's a wonderful promise there. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The, the picture here is the wicked person surrounded by sorrows, the one who's following the Lord surrounded by mercy and joy. It might not seem like it for a moment, but you know, seems often like the world has it all. But it's very easy to forget the sorrows of an unclean conscience, of a guilty heart, fears, trepidations, being subject to the fear of death all your life, having the hand of God heavy pressed upon you. Think of C.S. Lewis saying he remembered what type of faith it took to be an atheist. The, the life at without God, he, he didn't forget what that was when he came to Christ. There's many sorrows there for the wicked. But if we trust the Lord, trust him with our salvation and everything from that moment, mercy shall surround that individual. Right? The worst thing in a relationship is when something is there in between, something unaddressed, something that's undealt with. Think of two incidents recently just came to mind. There's a, a lady whose husband passed away, and then they find out at the funeral that he had a second life with another family who just showed up there. Right? Now that family's left in a position where there's, there's no place to ask for repentance to be guileless anymore. The acknowledgement, however he might have feared it, would have been better than to be left in that moment. Or another a father who gets in a car accident and mentally is incapacitated and they weren't sure why he was driving that way and they find out it was because he was having an affair. But they can't talk to him about it anymore because he can't mentally understand or communicate. Would have been better to have acknowledged it, to have been guileless. Right? Now there's pain, this thing that just sits there. God doesn't want that with us. He doesn't want his children to have that type of life with him. He did everything possible so that we don't have to live like that. Everything possible so that he could have a free relationship with sons and daughters, imperfect sons and daughters. He made a way for us so that we can walk in the blessings of forgiveness in him. A guy named Richard Adkins read verse 10 to his 10-year-old grandson. He took it as a promise in his life. He said, mark that text. He said, I read it in my youth, and I believed it, and now I read it in my old age, and thank God I know it to be true. Right? It's an incredible promise that God gives us there. And then what's the reaction of that? Of course, it's verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Why are you righteous? Not because you're righteous, because he has extended his righteousness to you. I walk in righteousness because of him. And shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. Can the world be glad in sin and worldliness and fleshly enjoyments? And we who have salvation in God, who have our transgressions and our sins and our iniquity dealt with, not have any joy? Nowhere to rejoice? Of course it shouldn't be like that. Of course not. The blessings of his forgiveness are there for every single individual. Of course, we're still imperfect, but he has made a way for imperfect sons and daughters to walk with him. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's acknowledgement, sincerity. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That word all in the Greek means all. So now you're all Greek scholars. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not just the moment I get saved. The whole walk that I have with him from that moment through to glory, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. I can be cleansed so that I can be upright and righteous before him and walk with nothing in between us. That thing has been dealt with. Of course, it's going to come out. I'm not, a, I'm not a hypocrite by being an imperfect person that walks with Jesus. That's called a Christian. Right? You're a hypocrite when you act like you're something you're not. If you're walking around, I've talked to Christians a ton, they're like, oh, I'm not reading my Bible like I should, I lose my temper here. I'm, and they're just walking around confessing guilelessly all their sin. I'm, a hip, I'm like, you're not a hypocrite. You're confessing everything right now. Probably things you don't even need to confess. Right now, you would be a hypocrite if you were acting like none of those things were true. And you were more spiritual than you were. Then you'd be a hypocrite. You're not a hypocrite when you come to him and say, Lord, if you don't help me, all I'll ever do is sin. I need your help, and I need your cleansing. And Jesus would say to his disciples, you're clean in my word. You just need to be washed your feet a little bit. Right? You just need that, that cleansing of the water and the blood to take care of us along the path. We should walk in those blessings. God has purchased them for us. He went through an incredible price to extend them to us. They are a part of literally who he is in his goodness and his grace. And David here wants to teach us that you can find them. They're there for you tonight. So respond to him in the time when he may be found if he's speaking to you. And don't seek for excuses because then you'll lose the joy. You'll miss out on those blessings. There'll be something that lingers there between you and him. And you'll find yourself in that first position that David was in until he acknowledged his sin and he was forgiven. So let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for even what we already sang. 
that we have before the throne of God above, a high and perfect plea, a priest on our behalf who can cleanse us and wash us. And Lord, I do pray for any of my brothers and sisters here tonight that Satan would want to despair in you, that they would find the blessings here that David speaks of, that they would take heed to his words and find you in the way. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who is just fearful of what that is, that you would be their instructor and their teacher and their guide. You're our good shepherd. We don't have need of anything if we have you. So lead us, Lord, in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we do ask, Lord, that your goodness and mercy would follow us all the days of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.